0: is Eschatology and I'm Ben Thorpe. For this interview, I spoke with Dina Gillia Whitaker. She's a member of the Colville Confederated Tribes and a lecturer of American Indian Studies at California State University. I came across her book because it was cited as part of a video done by Philosophy Tube on climate grief. It's a great video that I'll link in the description, but basically it's about drawing these lines between a lot of seemingly disconnected problems. Things like police militarization indigenous sovereignty and climate change my conversation with dina covered a lot of ground we talked about how indigenous erasure in the early environmental movement has carried through to today and the distinctions she draws between environmental justice and indigenous environmental justice this largely centered around her most recent book as long as grass grows she has another book from 2016, All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths about Native Americans, and an upcoming book, Illegitimate Nation, Confronting Settler Privilege and Moving Towards a Transformational Land Ethic. I'll try to make sure that links to all of the above are pretty easily findable. All right, let's get to it. Do you want to start just by introducing yourself?
1: Sure. I'm Dina Gillia Whitaker, um, uh, YP Snuxil. Quote, Dina Whitaker. Um, I'm a descendant of the Colville Confederated Tribes in Washington State. And I also uh, teach American Indian Studies at California State University at San Marcos. And, and I'm an independent consultant as well.
0: So uh, obviously, I've, I've been reading your book. I kind of came to it through some other kind of conversations that I was paying attention to around climate change and uh, capitalism and imperialism. And as I was reading through it, you know, for the first time, I was kind of struck by this. You talk a lot about the idea that, especially for Native people, this is kind of already a post-apocalyptic world. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that idea and how that shapes engagement with kind of this current environmental movement that we have right now that is worried and warning about kind of a a future or coming apocalypse. Can you talk about uh, that difference?
1: Yeah, you know, as native people like we live in a landscape that has been completely transformed over, you know, the last four centuries. Um and for people who are place-based and who understand themselves as emerging out of these particular places with which they have they have ancient ancient relationships, um for native people like there is really no separation between between them and the land. Um an example of that is uh can be found in the language that I just referred to, that which is called Insokchinets, the language of the Sioux people. Um and as the scholar Jeanette Armstrong points out, the, the word for land, um uh the word for land is um and in that word is also the word for body, like the, a person's body. So this really imparts this um, kind of worldview that, that sees no separation between humans and the land. And so when you have these incredibly violent, vi- uh, violent historical processes that have shaped who we are today um, and this uh, profound disruption, um, then then you can see how, I mean, like where I live in Southern California, for example, um, to illustrate this point, um, for native people who are indigenous to this place, you know, either in Orange County where I'm at, which is the ancestral lands of the ahashiman people, or you go up to Los Angeles, which is the the, Uh, homeland of the Tongva people, and you see nothing but concrete and skyscrapers, that is all land that has been um, completely remade and literally paved over. Um, We were talking about sacred sites and burials and springs and places that create, that were the the places of That made life possible. So, um, all of these things, you know, this profound just uh, dispossession and disruption is is what we mean when we say that um, that, that the world that we see now is is post apocalyptic. We no longer have, you know, in many cases, uh, access to those places. And to see, you know, on a daily basis, um, to extend this thought for people that live in, in in really extreme urban environments like here where development is constant and and relentless um the 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 digging up of of sacred sites and burials is routine so imagine being coming from a culture or a people where um you know uh, on the daily, you are dealing with your ancestors being dug up. I mean, how in, in, in what other world is that acceptable, right? Except, you know, do we dig up European burials, settler burials as, as a matter of routine? No, it's considered, uh, you know, sacrilegious, like you just don't do that. But um, it's just a matter of regularity for Native peoples.
0: Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm wondering if it's it just makes it for me again, I, I guess it makes it clear that, you know, this concern about catastrophe and this con- concern about kind of what's happening to the environment right now that we're, I think we're seeing uh, get larger. But we can talk about that later. Um, it, it feels like it's really just about who what groups are really about to be impacted. And, you know, maybe you can talk about why it's important to remember those who have who have been seeing this for you know, generations.
1: Yeah, because you know, it's like what native people have always said: like what we do to to the earth, we do to ourselves. Like it's pretty pretty straightforward. It's not hard to understand that. Uh, and you know, we see that happening now: like people being displaced through processes of climate change and through um, through you know sea level rise. You know, people. And that, and we know that that's going to keep happening. And so um, the ways that as native people, we have been, um, our world has been disrupted. um, You know, now it's, it's reaching to everybody else. I mean, how, how, how do you know? Just because it hasn't happened to you, meaning settler populations yet, doesn't mean it won't. Um, And, you know, so there's no reason to think that um, anybody will really be spared in these processes. I mean, where I live, um, in a very affluent part of coastal Southern California, we see sea level rise um, happening much faster than, um, than was anticipated. And that's all, you know multi-million dollar properties you know sea level rise doesn't discriminate so um you know it's already happening you know the state of california their their uh, approach to dealing with climate change and ocean sea level rise is um uh, mani- what they call it managed retreat like there, you know, there's armoring, they call armoring, you know, the building of seawalls, like that's going on. But like, that's really controversial because that impacts coastlines down, down the beach, you know, mile for miles. Um, and so um, they, they don't, they don't, um, you know, they don't like that. Um, The state does not um, believe in in armoring. And so their approach is this this managed retreat, which basically means like we're going to those these are going to have to be abandoned. All these properties. That's a lot of stranded assets. Um, So that's not something in the future that's happening right now. And, you know, and we sit in California and it's happening, you know, certainly in other places, Miami, of course, being um, one of them. One of the things
0: that you talk about um, is the kind of different philosophical paradigms in the indigenous conception of a relationship to space and time. And I was really interested in this, especially as you were kind of talking about that, you know, in the rare instances where the U.S. legal system does acknowledge um, indigenous sacred spaces, it's often because they say something, you know, happened historically here. And you were kind of talking about this idea that, uh, you know, the conception there shouldn't just be that something historically happened that was good and sacred, but that the the land itself carries that through time. Can you maybe talk about that idea?
1: Yeah, it's the, the, the way that the U.S. legal system is built on a different kind of philosophical orientation to the world. And, and Vine Deloria is really the one who's, our, you know, our, he's considered the grandfather of uh, American Indian studies, and he has the, uh, really articulated this so clearly, uh, pointing out the differences between Western societies and, and Indigenous societies. And um, this is this is a broad generalization, you know, to say that, you know, all Native people believe a certain thing is dangerous. It's risky to say that. But there are commonalities that we can say are true. And it's really like the the indigenous peoples, this this connection to land that I was talking about that that um, really defines who indigenous people are is uh, is about, so it's about that spatial orientation to the world um compared to, Western societies, you know, coming from uh, especially Europe, um, where the this orientation to the world is based on this conception of time, you know, a a linear progress from, you know, past to present to future was which sets up sort of a hierarchical uh, way of seeing the world. And, um, and it's based on events that happen in time. And the best that is um to to consider the way that we celebrate holidays like christmas right in a, in a in western societies um even though there's debate about whether or not we can say the like the u.s for example is um a christian nation some would say yes and some would say no still we have these holidays that sort of structure our lives like christmas and then Easter, which of course are Christian holidays, um, but Christianity celebrates uh, the, the birth of Jesus Christ and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, you know, respectively through the through his death and resurrection. And um, those are events that take place in time. These are not events that are notable for uh, how for where they happen. Um, it doesn't really celebrate place. We could talk about the Holy Land as being an important place, but it's really not, it's really more because of the events that happen on that place. So um, for Native people, like the concept of time is secondary. It's that places are sacred because of um the function that they have for native people and that can be illustrated even in origin stories um you know we have stories about why uh, you know a certain place has a, a particular meaning um but generally it's related to you know i would say more often than not that that's related to um the the kinds of functions that a place would have for native people that it grows a certain type of food or that um it's known for good hunting or um or it's just known as a as a power spot something remarkable um things think remarkable things happen in those places so um so yeah it's a much different um <clears throat> sort of philosophical approach and western, western law can't accommodate that like you know, in a temporal or time-oriented reality, which, which Western positivist law is, uh, you know, is, it cannot accommodate this much, this very, very different um, orientation to the world, which is why we have so much problems, uh, you know, protecting native sacred sites because, because our religions aren't considered real religions. In the eyes of the law,
0: um, you also talk about the difference between kind of mainstream environmental justice and indigenous environmental justice, and I'm wondering if you can draw that line for us between those two things.
1: Environmental justice, the way it's conceived, of you know, it, it comes out of um, com- communities that are not indigenous. It really comes begins with Black communities in the South, at least in the United States. Um, protecting their lands from toxic development um, because of this concept called environmental racism, where it became evident that communities of color were targeted <clears throat> for these toxic waste uh, waste facilities because of because of being already marginal, <clears throat> excuse me, marginalized people. Um, and so this concept of environmental racism comes to be seen as, you know, a legitimate thing, something that really, you know, actual processes that happen. And, but for native peoples, um, this the the history of environmental injustice is much broader than that because it begins, as I argue in the book, with these these historical processes of running of dispossessing native people. first, genocide, okay, So genocide, the actual killing of native people for their land. and then um, cultural genocide which follows, um, which is all about, dispossessing Native people of their culture, um, which is always connected to the dispossessing of Native peoples of their land um, in order to, as we say, uh, for settling populations to replace them. And um, without understanding processes of injustice um, outside of that context, it's pretty meaningless for Native people. I mean, just the, the definition that the federal government and states use they talk about you know um justice not being let's see the word the wording is like you know without regard for race national origin things like that but for native people that's really problematic like we need to be have our national origins recognized because as native people we are not just racial minorities we are people um with nations, with treaty relationships to the federal government. Um, and we are the only people in the United States that, ha- that have that kind of political um, relationship with the United States. And so if that is not recognized, then that is you know, a process of erasure. We cannot get justice and uh, based on the actual history of, of these, um, again, these profoundly violent processes. Um, unless, um, unless we can acknowledge that 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 happens and it continues to happen, yeah.
0: And, and separate, but I think relatedly, you also talk about kind of the the white supremacy that is baked into a lot of our kind of modern environmental movement that I think also is engaging with this a similar kind of erasure. Uh, you, you cite the example of the Sierra Club talking about, you know, protecting these unpeopled wildernesses and how that idea is just kind of inherently erasing indigenous peoples. Can you talk, uh, you know, a little bit more about that and and whether or not, you know, you, you think that strain still carries through to today and to our kind of modern uh, environmental movements?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think that it does. And I'll get to that in a minute. But, but the environmental movement begins with, well, with white people, um, you know, protecting, trying to protect what they think of as these virgin wilderness um, areas, which as Mark David Spence has pointed out in his brilliant work, he says, these, these um, wilderness spaces first had to be created. So, and he's talking about the formation of the national, national parks, the very first national parks. Um, and which of course were, never virgin wilderness those lands were pe- places that uh that people native people had always inhabited um even if it was just seasonally but there is not one square inch on this continent that native people did not use um you know in in any parts of their lives so um so you know that whole framework is uh you know perf- incredibly erasive of native people so um so so it always begins with, you know, settler histories, right? Understanding, you know, the misconception of lands as being um, virgin wilderness, unpeopled uh, landscapes, you know, is based on this this um, this approach to history that begins with settler histories, where native people are written out; they are inconsequential, and so 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 that frames that entire world view about what um what environmentalism looks because it's all about saving oh we have to save the land save the land um because of you know settler modernity which is always all about the way land gets used it's it's always about the the exploitive uh, way that land is seen by western peoples and that's all about um you know putting land to use for human uh well for capitalism really i mean it we can't really separate those processes out native it's not that native people didn't use the land or even alter their landscapes because because they did um but it was for it was for different reasons and and it was for perpetuating their own existence and the existence of, um, what we would call their, their non-human relatives, um, because in a worldview that sees, um, sees you is not separate from the land. You are, uh, you are just part of a much larger, you know, web of, web of life. So, um yeah. I mean, so so white, so this white supremacy, or we could even call it settler supremacy. I mean, it's not just racial. it's really it's really about how how invading populations came here and then set up systems where they perceived themselves as superior in order to justify. Their are taking of the land from, you know, savage Indians. Um, and that's really, it's, a, it's, that's exactly what's baked into the, to the legal system. So, um, all of that, you know, brings forward into the, the modern environmental movement. Um, we can even, we can look as far back as Henry David Thoreau, as I write about in the book who, um, you know, considered the godfather of the modern environmental movement, he and and John Muir, um, and, you know, Henry David Thoreau, people don't like it when I criticize these, these guys, but, but we have to understand that this, this is these guys were normal the way that they looked at the land the way that they looked at indigenous people was normal they weren't exceptionally racist i mean to even say the word racist is a little like it's a it's almost um kind of i don't know it it almost doesn't make sense when you look at um, pretty much the way, even though Henry David Thoreau was was an abolitionist, I mean he was a very radical guy for his time, um, and he really appreciated Indian people. And you know he was you know to the point of really fixated and sort of sort of uh, you know fetishized Native people. He studied them. He had friends who were Native, but ultimately he believed in their demise. He believed that Native people were were um, doomed, you know, to to fade into the mists of history, um, be, you know, especially if they weren't Christianized. So, um, you know, do we call this racism? Not really. I don't call that racism. I call that white, I call that settler supremacy, uh, because it's based on this idea that, that, you know, European Christians, by virtue of their superior culture, which again is a language that that the supreme court used early on to to compare themselves to native people and to justify um, the violent taking of land um this is what gets baked into the the environmental movement that you know native people are just inherently inferior so um uh, yeah and i and i think that we still see it. We still see it in in very insidious ways. I know I see it as a native person. Um, it comes out in all kinds of crazy ways, including my own. Oh, I don't even want to get into it. But um, but yeah. Uh, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I and I'm sorry to be asking this question because I always ask it, but it's like, I w- I'm wondering where your whether you feel kind of hope about uh, you know, the ability of the environmental movement to begin to grapple with these things in a in a kind of serious way. I hope
1: that <laughs> that the environmental movement can evolve. Um, I sometimes I do see evidence of it, you know, but but there has to be, Um, you know, a deep introspection about these, the problematic dynamics that have shaped the modern environmental movement, Um, you know, especially in in regards to um, these ideas of privilege um, and the ways that this country was founded on dispossession of Native people. So if there can be, uh, you know, and not only that, but um, acknowledging indigenous knowledge. This is a huge piece of it. Like, you know, finally, there's starting to be evidence that, um, that Western science and, uh, and environmentalists get that native people that what, what sustainability means in the big picture is the ability to live on land in ways um, that don't destroy cultures and that's what native people have done on this continent for at least 15,000 years and so of course built into those societies is that um is that ethic and that um th- those values of of understanding what it means to live within the limits of ecosystems and that's what we're talking about so um you know a A capital, a capitalist society that doesn't acknowledge that is doomed to fail, no matter what. If you don't acknowledge the limitations of of the natural systems, then you know, and and still the the bottom line is all that matters in economic terms. Then it doesn't matter how you greenwash it; it's still going it's still going to be doomed to fail. So, so cap. So I really, you know, I like um, others of my colleagues. You know, see it as it's a system's problem, capitalism being the system that structures modern society as as the actual problem that needs to be uh, transcended.
0: Uh, I want to give you a moment to plug or kind of talk about your upcoming book and and when that's coming out. Illegitimate Nation: Confronting Settler Privilege and Moving Toward a Transformational Land Ethic.
1: Yeah, I'm just in the very beginning stages of of that. I'm um, my publisher, Beacon Press, uh, is enthusiastic to publish this book. Um, this sort of takes the last book, as long as grass grows, to the next level by understanding. Um, uh, by, by looking at how American society um, has been structured in a way that, uh, that's built on a lot of denial um, and that has not reckoned with that past, that past of genocide and indigenous land dispossession. So, um, and, and I mean, we are, we are in a moment right now with the racial justice movement that we're seeing in Black Lives Matter, where there's, there seems to be a, a reckoning happening in this country, which is, which is great. And it's cause for optimism, um, but for native people, unless we deal with the larger, the larger founding structures of the United States, states which is land dispossession which is beyond race this is beyond racism this is about how native populations were um were oh you know the attempted eliminations of our our nations in order to get the land and replace our populations. That's the thing that we're not talking about. That's what I call the colonial unspeakable. We can talk about race in this country and racism and white supremacy and white privilege, but, but the biggest taboo subject is to talk about how everybody who lives in the United States today is the beneficiary of that process, regardless of what race or ethnicity that you are. So um, so that's what the book's about. And and, uh, you know, it looks at it through the, the concept of political illegitimacy. As native people have pointed out in various ways throughout history that um, a country that s- supposedly founded on these values of freedom and democracy and justice for all yet denies certain populations routinely st- built into their structures their legal structures and that's what the uh, system of federal Indian law does um, then there's you know there's a lot of reasons to question the legit reasons why Native people would question the legitimacy of the country
0: I, I don't want to take too much of your time I know I've, I've taken a good chunk already is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to uh, mention
1: I don't know Pro- probably not. I think we I think that was a lot. There was a lot of a lot of information condensed into a short period of time,
0: yeah, you did. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, talking to me. I, I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, thanks again for listening. Huge thank you to Dina for taking time to talk with me. I'll make sure you can find a link to her work from wherever you're listening to this thing. As always, massive thank you to Ryan Hopper and Ryan Faber for providing music. If you're enjoying the show at all, drop a couple stars or maybe even a review on iTunes. It'll help people find the show. I'm Ben Thorpe, and this is Eschatology.